Hello everyone, I'm Troy Dodds and welcome to the On The Record podcast presented by The Western Weekender. On this podcast, I'm joined by special guests who all have such great stories to tell about Penrith and the role they've played in our city. They are Penrith stories told by Penrith's people. Today, my special guest is Fiona Scott. Fiona served as the member for Lindsay from 2013 to 2016. She has a strong background in marketing and business and has dabbled in the media post-politics as well. I really hope you enjoy our chat. Fiona, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Troy. First question we always ask, uh, where were you born and where did you grow up? (laughs) Well, like my father and many people before me, I was born in Nepean Hospital, um, which is, I guess, about as local as you can get. Indeed. Um, And yeah, my first postal address was RMB4, Lot 2, Mulgoa Road, Penrith. So I think Lot 2, Mulgoa Road, Regentville, which, um, yeah, we were... Some of the la- the last couple of blocks uh, on Mulgoa Road, just before you go down onto the hill that was, you know, rezoned into Glenmore Park, before Glenmore Park was built. So always been a, uh, a Penrith girl then. Yeah, through and through. Now, what's growing up in Penrith like uh, for you in that time? Look, I think Penrith has changed a lot over the years. I've got a photo of me when I was young, you know, sitting in a bikini riding a horse. You know, I literally had climbed up a fence to jump on this <laughs> horse. And um, my grandmother, you know, she was original farming families from out at Ludnam, multiple generations out that way. And my great-grandfather was one of the last serving aldermen on Mulgoa Council before Mm -hmm. it got amalgamated into Penrith. And so it was very much a thing, you know, that, you know, riding horses was something that all kids needed to do. Um, her father, in fact, his job was to grade the northern road with his pair of horses. So, right. so <laughs> it was kind of one of those essential skills where you look around today and you think, my goodness, how could you possibly think that a horse was an essential life skill? So, yeah, my cousin Melissa and I were, you know, we had to share a horse and we had to learn how to ride it and look after it and, and do those sorts of things. Now, of course, you're born into a family that's uh, pretty business business orientated. Um, your dad has been a guest on yep. um, on this podcast as well, um, John Scott. So, how, at what point did you become aware that um, you know you're in a pretty business sort of oriented world because you obviously follow that path as well? I don't think there's any way we couldn't have known. In so far as um, my grandparents um, back in 1936 bought some land which now sits opposite the uh, high street entry of the plaza. Yep. And um, my downstairs was the shop and then upstairs was my grandparents' unit and then across from that upstairs there was a courtyard was where my great-grandmother lived and my great-grandmother died, you know, a year or so before I was born and then her home or her little apartment got turned into the office. So... You know, we'd be picked up from school and we'd be running around the shop or we'd be upstairs with all my pop's junk, which, you know, I suppose calling his old stuff, old cars and things junk. But yeah, it was (laughs) junk. And it was the weirdest building in the world. Like he just, it was so eccentric. Like there was this tree in the middle of the building and you'd go drive through and you'd see like this tree. It was mad. Anyway, so school holidays and things we were always there you know the Mm. shop was downstairs we were upstairs you know running around doing whatever um my brother's favorite thing was going through all the glove boxes of my pop's cars or 
going through whatever junk he had upstairs and they'd find like jumping jacks and yeah. you know just throwing bungers down the um i probably shouldn't be talking about this should <laughs> i <laughs> but and then there's some pretty awesome photos of the the shop and everything like that that's still around um still do the rounds it's great that we've got that to be able to look back on as as well a, a great sort of time in penrith as well as, as penrith sort of um you know growing in back back then um 70s 80s kind of starting to to really grow and, and become a, a i guess a city in its own right yeah well i mean it's, yeah absolutely and so so for us as kids growing up in that you know we were in the shop or school mm. holidays we were there you know mum was working in the shop my grandmother was working in the shop my uncle was there you know so it was always very much a family thing that you know you don't know where family starts and the business ends because you know, the business was started by my grandfather and mm. it was always all hands on, on deck. And I don't know whether Dad said it in his, but, you know, he'd get up in the morning and pump petrol and yep. then go to school and come back. And I guess that's I guess that's the culture you get in a family, you know, that that's how you're raised and you don't necessarily know that other people are raised differently Indeed. until you get older. So when do you, where do you end up uh, going to school? So I went to school at Kindlin. Mm-hmm. Um, which started by an Aboriginal man called Bill Oates, who just he, amazing, amazing Aboriginal man. Um, and kindergarten, believe it or not, was in the old Castle Ray Hall. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> so the Castle Ray Hall was split in half um, with like piles of chairs stacked up in the middle and kindy first and second was on one side and three, four, and five on the other. And one of the little rooms out the front along Castlebury Road was um, where year six was. And that was kindergarten. And that's, I think there was, what, 77 kids in the school Mm. at that stage. And then um, that then moved to where uh, the Lakes School is now, which is at the bottom of East Wilchard Road. Um, And at that stage, Kindlin was the feeder school to St Paul's. So I went from Kindlin across to St Paul's at Cranebrook um, you know, when I got to year seven. Well, what's pretty evident in all of that, people talk about Penrith being this sort of cross of city countries that you very much grew up in rural Penrith. Rural Penrith was, was it for you. Absolutely, yeah. No, So I've always seen it in that sort of a, a way and, you know, you come into Penrith and how quickly it's changing and it's it's mind-blowing. Indeed. Now, given where you end up, a few, you know, a few years later, do you feel like you grew up in a political family? Um, you know, where does the political interest come from? Was was politics a discussion point around the dinner table? <laughs> yes, absolutely, it was. Um, yeah, absolutely, it was. And I mean, my family were always very um, transparent about the business and the work, and you know, I. I suffer from insomnia I have done my whole life like my father does and you know I always remember getting out of bed at you know for whatever reason and probably jumping into bed with my parents when I was six or seven and dad would be working on the computer at Mm. two three o'clock in the morning you know he he just incredible work ethic and um he would always watch the budgets and I think going through you know the political cycles and the budgets particularly through, you know, the hyper interest rates, which it's interesting yep. we've got some of those dynamics playing out globally at the moment. But the hyper interest rates and the recession we had to have and, um, you know, the wage accords and what all of that was going to mean, the bringing in of superannuation, um, my dad would finish those nights after the treasurer, whichever persuasion had handed down the budget, and he'd, 
go to his desk and he'd sort of work it out and go, well, you know, this is how many stock turns and this is what it's going to take to be able to make that up to be able to then increase salaries to cover this or that or whatever entitlement it was that was being introduced at the time. Therefore, you know, we'd have the breakfast meeting, well, not paying myself for six months or three <laughs> months and, you know, you're not getting sneakers now because oh, yeah. I can't, we can't afford to do it because, you know, my dad's ethos always was he'd pay the staff first and yeah. made sure he was always right up with their entitlements first and then paid, you know, everybody else successively down there, you know, his bank, you know, contributions and everything else. So um, the last person to get paid was always our family. So, you know, you're always really aware as to how government and government policy interacted with things when, you know, it was, well, you're not getting sneakers this year. Or I mean, I, I wore the same school uniform in year seven as I did in year 12. And mm. even when I went from year 10 to year 11, um, you know, and at St. Paul's they changed from a junior uniform to a senior uniform, my shirt and scarf were actually a hand-me-down from my cousin Melissa. Yeah. So, you know, they're the sort of decisions that are, are made when you're in small business. And I don't think that sort of upbringing or dynamic is different to people in small business today. You know, when you, when, you know, a treasurer makes comments or an election comes about, or, you know, there's a global event that happens, you know, you want to keep your business afloat. You want to keep hold of your best asset, which is often your people, you know, and they're the interface with your customers and everything else. So how do you keep that alive? And, you know, government does interface with that and so that really was what introduced me to to politics and being you know rather than some kids being really excited about state of origin I'd get excited (laughs) about budget night (laughs) which is just crazy but you know I, I still enjoy those things and I still enjoy that dynamic of understanding how those things fit and you know from my dad I developed that really strong interest in economics now, business obviously has a big impact on you because you head to university at um, what is now called Western Sydney University, but yep. U- University of Western Sydney at the time to study a Bachelor of Business. Now, I imagine you could have taken the path of just following in the family business in, in some ways, but you obviously wanted to, to refine that, that skill set. So what was the thinking or what, what did you think you wanted out of that at, at the time to, to go and do that degree? Yeah, well, I guess the first thing for me was I actually, um, I'm going to backtrack a little bit on you, Mm. is I actually picked up sticks when I was 19 and jumped on a plane and flew to London and spent two years working in London. Um, I worked for a company called Inmarsat, which at the time was a subsidiary of the United Nations um, that was the International Maritime Satellite Organization and is now a publicly listed company on the British Stock Exchange. Um, that was a really amazing experience for me and it sort of pushed me back into, at the end of that, they were pushing me to go into the accounting line and I'm not an accountant. Um, but after a couple of years, I just wanted to come home and I wanted to get on with my life. So about 21, 22, and I was just really confused. Like I was just really confused at that age, not knowing what I wanted or where I wanted to go. I wasn't like my brothers, so... My oldest brother's a civil engineer and my middle brother, that I'm the youngest in our family, he did commerce law with, you know, econometrics, finance and accounting and honours in finance and accounting and just crazy smart. Um, I'm not an accountant like Glenn. Um, so I'm, always, I'm a bit more, cr- mm. I, I like more the creative fields of things. So I actually came home from that. I actually then went 
to TAFE. So I went to the yep. Western Sydney Institute of TAFE on Henry Street and did the certificate in marketing. Um, I actually really liked that. And it was actually something I shared with my dad. Again, my mom keeps telling me I'm like my dad, but anyway. <laughs> and it reminded me also when my dad started Auto One and, you know, as a kid, he'd take me off to all the advertising meetings with Thomas Marsden, which yep. is another great yes. Penrith business. Yes, indeed. And, um, you know, seeing the jingles being made and, you know, I actually really loved advertising and marketing because I did, I remember going to those meetings with my dad. So I kind of followed that because it was business, but it was creative. And then I fo- I was working in the family business and then I rolled that into a bachelor business with a major in marketing. And I really enjoyed that and I did really well in that. And then I took on some advertising and promotions and campaigns with the Auto One group widely mm-hmm. um, and then got through that the campaigns I developed just got bigger (laughs) so from being our four shops it then became all the shops in western sydney that were in the auto one group and then i pitched it into all of the auto one shops in new south wales and then i got elected onto the uh new south wales marketing and purchasing committees for auto one and then my promotions got picked up nationally and then they got ran by all the auto one shops in australia so i sort of thought well maybe this marketing thing maybe i'm kind of okay at it so um, I then rolled the Bachelor of Business, that rolled the diploma in marketing into the Bachelor of Business with a major in marketing um, at Western Sydney University. Um, I did at the same time a certificate in graphic design, which supported doing all of those sorts of campaigns, mm-hmm. um, which meant that after having done all of that through the TAFE system, which was amazing to have been able to gateway into university through TAFE because it it just helped me and I, I was able to work the whole way through. Um, I did a sub-major with fine art. So I was up here at the Kingswood campus, you know, doing, um, you know, photography and painting and all of those sorts of things. So, you know, really, I guess the inspiration for business wasn't just my dad, but it was, you know, it was like um, Phil Moorhead and, you know, John Bauhut and, you know, being exposed to that advertising agency back in the day and you know all of those little amazing clips and their their books that they brought out which was awesome and this leads you to some some pretty other exciting work around around Penrith as well including at um at Westfield Penrith which was going through a a pretty significant change around the time that um that you came into the picture yeah so I left the auto one after sort of getting into the national role there's no further I could go with auto one um so I then went and worked for Yates and then from Yates um was actually um, headhunted to go to Westfield. So I, I had this random call out of the blue um, that they'd had issues with um, the redevelopment of the centre. So Westfield had been acquired uh, by... Uh, the Penrith Plaza had been acquired by Westfield through, I guess, <laughs> challenging circumstances. Yep. And um, the community were less than impressed with the way it had occurred and there was challenges in relationships between various entities. I don't know how much of this I can... <laughs> I can <laughs> Say as much as you like. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> without getting def- defaming people. But but so, yeah, I, I got brought into that project and um, that was so much fun. And, you know, look, I learnt more about politics working for Westfield than I did <laughs> being in politics. But... Um, 
it was it was an amazing role. It was an amazing opportunity. It was amazing to see, you know, to understand that, you know, look, Westfield and GPT may have physically owned the asset. Mm. But a shopping centre is a, you know, it's a community beacon. It's a meeting point of the community. And at the end of the day, if those things are going to be successful, then the community has to own it. They have to feel like it is theirs. And, you know, that is the heart of any shopping centre, any location, any of those things. It's probably the same as your paper, Troy. You know, there's times with the newspaper, like, is it owned by somebody or is it really an asset of the community? And I think with this paper in particular, it's being an independent paper, it's an asset of the community. Mm. And, you know, there's, there's actually a lot of responsibility in that. And I think it takes... I think, you know, hats off to Westfield to then wanting to bring somebody locally to reconnect the centre with the community. And I think that's a really important role of anything to do with marketing and and any business when you are local. I guess the success of of that, people still call it the plaza, which means that they must still feel that it's theirs, (laughs) I guess you would would think. My favourite... You can try as hard as you like, but no one's calling it Westfield. My my (laughs) favourite... Yeah, it's always the plaza. (laughs) But my favourite story on all of that, right, was um, when Westfield had acquired it, um, and I wasn't there at this stage... Um, the shop, the centre closed on a Thursday night. It was like the 30th of June mm. and, um, you know, Thursday night, late night shopping and, you know, the the new-to-be centre manager kind of knocked on the door and said, hand over the keys, you know, get out of yeah. here. And um, the Westfield team then swooped into the centre and over the course of the night, any Penrith Plaza logo they could mm. find, they ripped it down, right, you know, they put new signage on every entry even and you know this dates things but even the tickets in the ticket booth when you went through the car park would change to a westfield ticket and it was that sort of micro detail and the fact that they couldn't even start till thursday night shopping had ended um but it was done by when the directors turned up first thing friday morning and you know (laughs) in one way you, you sit there and go wow that is impressive but for the shopholders the next morning in the Penrith community walking in there and went, what the hell? Yeah. But um, there's one logo they could never remove and that's at the bottom of the bol- – or the, the – um, I want to say the bollards, the big <laughs> – the, the things that hold up the building. Um, the – what do you call them? The, the big structural columns. The there columns, we go. Yes, Columns, there yes. we go, found it. Um, if you look at the bottom, there is like a steel plate at the bottom and yeah. it's – Penrith Plaza, <laughs> in that old sort of Penrith Plaza script with the green background. Of course, now I think the signage actually says Westfield Penrith Plaza, so they, they kind of went back to, well, to no, that at some point, or did they stay with it the whole time? It was always Westfield Penrith Plaza on the outside of the building, but yeah. all of the marketing was Westfield yeah, Penrith. Yeah. yeah. Now, is politics lurking in the background at this stage or in the mid-2000s here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. because we know that in, in 2010, but we when did you first start to seriously say, I might want to have a crack for public office? Um, taking the Westfield job was actually significant for me in that, that I I was terrified of politics in my 20s. And I yeah. don't think that's an abnormal... Uh, look, politics is brutal, it's confronting, it's vicious. I think in a social media environment nowadays, the trolling and behaviour online is just mind-blowing um and it's terrifying and i think because you know the seats here have been marginal for so long you know the discourse that can happen is pretty 
can be pretty special, mm. pretty out there. So I was terrified of it. And I was also terrified of it because I'm I'm not I'm not an extreme right winger. I'm not an extreme left winger. I'm very much centre of the road, um, coming from that sort of family business, small business background. And you see the political debate is often, you know, polarised by people to the extreme left or Mm. the extreme right, not necessarily people that somewhat sit in the centre. And I guess it took me till I was 30 to sort of understand that the centre is actually a really important position because that's where the bulk of the population are. And you actually become more of a negotiator that sits in the middle that can talk to the Mm. left or talk to the right and find that consensus point. And so I guess it was, you know, when I was 30, almost 30, I I had been friends with Stuart Ayres for many years. We'd been mates through friends and, you know, obviously all growing up in Penrith together. And I said to Stuart, you know, I think I'll, you know, I think think I'm interested. I think I'll join. Yep. And I sort of thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I need to come back to Penrith to do it. Um, and so when the Westfield opportunity was presented to me and I was living, I had moved out of Penrith, I was living at Breakfast Point and working at Strathfield, um, I thought, well, okay, this is an opportunity to come back to Penrith, um, but to come back as me, not as, um, you know, John Scott's daughter working yep. in Scott's Auto One and mm. just be that, um, I'd gone and worked elsewhere um i'd worked in the city and now you know i could build myself so did, did that bother you in some ways about penrith that you were known more but previous to coming back that you were no. more known, you know did that play any role in you not wanting to come back at any stage um or, or wanting to, to work outside of penrith more so no i mean look i, I went to the uk because i wanted to be me, you know, and not be defined mm. by my family. And no, I love my family and, and, you know, I'm very proud of, you know, what they've achieved, particularly my dad and my grandparents. But um, I, I wanted this to be identif- my own identity and not sort of and shadowed by that. And, and I, and that's not a disperse, that's not disparaging of them in any way. So Westfield Penrith was an opportunity for me to actually then start to, put my toe in the water and to rebuild as me not just as an entity of my family's business now how do you you come back you do westford how do you get to be the candidate in 2010 Uh, a late comer to the race if i recall (laughs) 39 39 days 36 Um, days something like that so so where is that at labor has torn itself apart by by now after um after of course kevin rudd's elected in 07 um 2010 election you you go up against david bradbury how does the First of all, the pre-selection process play out for you, and, and why was it such a, a short-run thing? Thirty-nine days. Couple of reasons. Well, I joined the Liberal Party. Um, I rang Stuart the day after the Liberal Party lost in two thousand and seven, and said, "Okay, ready to join." Yep. So, joined the Liberal Party then, um, and then went to some branch meetings and. Um, had quite a few people who had also been asking me to run. In fact, I even had some Labor people ask me to run yeah, in okay. 2007. Um, and I said, no. So I was asked to actually challenge David Bradbury to pre-selection in 2007. Yeah. But I'm just not Labor. I'm not connected to the union movement. So, you know, that's not me. Um, so 
um, I was just really lucky, you know, and I had people who were supporting me instantly to get running. Um, we then, in what, 2009, we had the pre-selections for Penrith, Londonderry and Mogul, which, mm-hmm. of course, Bart Bassett, Stuart Ayres and Tanya Davies won those pre-selections. Um, and, you know, then uh, I had a lot of support for Lindsay um, and was asked to go and meet with Tony Abbott and it took about six months for that to happen, um, for, you know, the swatches to align. Um, interestingly, I met Tony Abbott at the christening of Jackie Kelly's, I think it was her son, at St Nicholas of Myra on yeah. High Street, Penrith. And then Tony and I sat on the at Jackie's house, actually, and, you know, eating frozen McCain pizzas, <laughs> talking about um, potentially running for Lindsay. And um, he said that he'd like to support me to run. Uh, that was in 2010. And then I had other people from the party come out with and meet with me about that. Um, and we were trying to get the pre-selection up because obviously the state seats had been pre-selected. But mm. then Karen Palazzano fell over with ICAC, yep. which of course p- caused the Penrith by-election, mm-hmm. um, which elected Stuart Ayres to the New South Wales Parliament. Um, and under the party constitution, whilst there's an election or a by-election, everything else stops, which means the Lindsay pre-selection was paused for that period of time, which locked everything back massively. Um, And then um, everybody in the party was trying desperately to pull those pieces together because the ricochet of that by-election was quite... um, it was quite significant in David Bradbury then going to Julia Gillard about issues and of the time and, you know, Labor pulling on the election and the concerns about mm. Lindsay and all the rest of it, um, which meant that in the end we had to have – we had the pre-selection, it got pulled forward, it got cut down in process because the Liberal Party was running against the clock. There was a bunch of seats at the same time that the Liberal Party was a bit short on and so I was pre-selected on the Tuesday night. Wednesday morning, Tony Abbott turns up with the entire media bus circus <laughs> and we walk through the Wednesday market. I that, yes. Um, and it was, oh my gosh, it was mind-blowing. And then the election was called on the Saturday and then on the Sunday, Abbott was out again. So that was literally... The um, that was the 2010 election, so it was like 36 or 39 days from beginning to end. Pretty crazy to be just thrown into campaign mode, like not no time to, to prepare for anything, just straight into, into campaign mode. The 2010 election, um, David Bradbury retains the yep. seat, you get a swing to you, so what was the feeling after that 2010 defeat? Was there some, some positivity that, well, there's been a swing to you in just 36, 39 days, whatever it may be? Um, and that you were really keen to go again three years later? Yep. I, I, I took it as a success. Yeah. I, I, I bounced straight out of it, and um, I didn't know I was supposed to be sad that I lost. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought Lindsay would be a two-term effort, mm. um, but I got the timing wrong. I thought it would be – I didn't think Labor would fall apart as quickly as they did in that yeah. term. I thought they would take a bit longer. Um, so I thought Lindsay would be you run in 2013, you win in 2016. Sure, okay. The timing I had in my head. Um, and so I had started my own marketing consulting business off on the side at this point. So running in 2010 was not career-wise a 
for financially great yeah. for me because I was, you know, building my own consulting business. So, um, but, you know, the opportunities there, you've just got to run and jump and do your best. Mm. So, that's what we did and – or what I did. So, um, I, I was – yeah, I, I, I thought it was better than I was expecting. I, I do play to win. I don't play to lose. And I thought we could win it. Um, so, we did play pretty hard. Um, but, you know what, I have to say, even at the time, it was way – I mean, I thought politics was full on, but it was way more um, – it was way more full on than I'd even mm. given it credit for and the – you know, when they say to you, oh, you know, the media bus, you think, oh, yeah. that's just a euphemism. <laughs> and then the media turns up and they're on a bus and there's a bus of them. You're like, holy balls. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I guess this is the, the thing for you in, in a seat such as Lindsay, which is going to always get that, that major attention. Um, that media bus is, is popping by every week or so. Oh, yeah, or every couple of days. And yeah. But then you've got journos. Like, I remember, like, there was journos trying to find where we were mm. and trying to spot you on the street or whatever. And, I mean... Um, and all of the the false narratives that run everywhere. Like, for instance, I remember um, I'd be at Penrith train station and David Bradbury would be out in the morning at Emu Plains train station and go, oh, here I am at Emu Plains tra- yeah. station. Where's Fiona Scott? Missing in action. <laughs> I'm like, I'm at Penrith train station. Like, what are you talking about? And then the next morning he'd be at Penrith, I'd be at St Mary's. And where's, I'm at Penrith train station. Where's Fiona Scott? Missing in action. I'm like, I'm yeah. at St Mary's train station. So... He was able to drive this narrative that I was nowhere, which meant it then became like this, you know, where's Wally kind of thing of people trying to find me at places. And, you know, I wasn't hidden, but it's one of those things that when somebody drives a false narrative out there, you know, people will then, you know, start to jump onto it. And I wasn't allowed to have a social media in 2010. So there was no way Mm. of combating that narrative pretty remarkable how far we've come re-social media that just didn't want you to have it in 2010 (laughs) now you now you would be absolutely required to have it in in 2022 i mean so when i was pre-selected again the first thing i said is you are not taking social media (laughs) off me because you know what i'm not going to have that happen again where i was going to all the same events even as david and i was doing more train stations than him i was doing more dawn i did 30 Mm. i don't know 30,000 houses before the 2013 election and I wasn't going to allow that to happen again. I was like, you know what? Every time I'm out, I'm going to I'm going to post. I'm going to post. I'm going to post. So you can't say that I'm not doing the work, yeah. Because you know, and and I think that's the hard thing. You know, it's about politics and other things. Is you know not losing the narrative and not allowing somebody else to push for sure their thoughts. Let's talk about the 2013 campaign. Firstly, from the perspective of. You know, often in elections, there is that feeling that we, you know, you know that um, the change is, is in the air. You can feel that the change is coming. Did you feel that in 2013? Did you feel at any stage early in the campaign that, that this is going to be successful? Um, or was it, you know, closer to the end where you were like, we could win this? What was the, the general vibe? I was pretty sure after 2010, we'd win 2013. Yeah. And, you know, when Rob Oakshock went and spoke to Parliament for 18 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and Labor just couldn't hold themselves together. They couldn't, you know, they had just, they were paralysed by division and um, it just was a never-ending story of it. You know, you had all the Peter Slipper stuff going on. Mm. You had all of the Craig Thompson stuff going on. And then, of course, the leadership changes from 
Gillard back to Rudd. Um, it just was one after another. And, you know, the uh, when, you know, senior Labor people started leaving it and, you know, really decent people, mm. you know, you know, I might be in liberal- general, generally the uh, the key indicator, isn't it? When uh, clearly people who don't want to serve in opposition uh, for the next three or six years decide that it might be time to go. Yeah, and and so when when you start seeing that, and of course there was, you know, the news poll was pretty, you know, strong. Um, you are aware that change is in the air. Um, the one thing I have to say, I found really disappointing in that stage, and it did stick with me. I. I actually genuinely liked David Bradbury. I think mm-hmm. he was a very good member for Lindsay. I think he was a very competent member of Parliament. And, you know, what he's achieved since leaving, you know, um, Australian political life with the OECD is yeah. really remarkable. Um, and in many ways, I look at the economy now and, you know, he's somebody that you'd probably want in the Australian mm. Parliament right now. You know, it's the disappointing thing about Lindsay is that, you know, when, when you lose people like that, I, I don't think... That serves the nation best. I mean, there's plenty of people in Parliament that <laughs> are not the not the cream of the crop. But you know, unfortunately, we, we had a very good MP in, in David Bradbury. But um, y- you know, I, I think it's one of those challenges that like we would be at events together, and you know, people would walk up and you know they turn their he'd be standing next to me or sitting next to me because that's how we were stood for whatever yeah. it was. And people work on me, putting their back to him. Oh, I hate that Bradbury, blah 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 blah. And they just talk mm. nasty stuff. And you know, I found that well, a obviously you sit there, okay, you know, this is community sentiment. But at the same token, it was also he was always very dignified in those circumstances. And you know, you sit there and think, well, at some point that's going to be me. And you know, I don't think he did anything to deserve that treatment and behaviour mm. when people do that. Um, but you, you see that happening and I think you, you, you can very much see the sentiment in the air. It's, you know, pretty easy to, to smell the tea leaves in that circumstances. But I think it's also a matter of when that happens, you know, you sit there and you learn from it as well and thinking, you know, this is this is the monster. Mm. There's an interesting moment in the 2013 uh, campaign on the 13th of August. Uh, that media bus makes its way to Penrith Stadium. Yeah, yes. Um, I know where you're going And here. I, I looked at this footage again this morning, actually, um, on, on YouTube. and <laughs> was trying to look at your your reaction and try to figure out uh, what you were actually thinking at the time. But, yeah, we know what happens. Tony Abbott um, is speaking about the, um, the the benefits, I guess, of his female candidates and mentions that, uh, that sex appeal is, is one of them. And such follows that, um, that that Tony Abbott has declared Fiona Scott has sex appeal. So vote for her for Lindsay. I, say, I guess is the is the subtext of all of that. In the moment when he says that, um, you laugh it off. You can see that in the in the footage. But what what are you thinking at that exact moment? My instant reaction is you are in so much trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's probably the exact laugh. Like I just like you are in so. And I I I guess it's a nervous reaction that I laughed like. Um, yeah, when, um, like I, I've had some good injuries in the year in my life, for instance, I had a 17 hand Irish draft horse kick me in the face and break my jaw. I've mm. got a metal jaw. Um, good local surgeon to pay in hospital recommend it well. Um, but yeah, so I'm, you know, having my jaw manipulated on broken jaw and I'm laughing, you know, that's one yeah. of my, you know, triggers when I'm, I, I, I laugh in <laughs> I've got that slightly more under control but so my instant reaction was I'm like you are in so much trouble and he 
then I don't know if you see this in the footage, but he actually freezes. He knows he's in trouble too. Mm. Um, I then walk across the camera, which shuts down the interview because he then, you know, if you remember, I think it was what Mark Riley, that footage when he was asked about stuff in Canberra mm. um, and he's like freezing and yes, he can't yeah. communicate. Yeah. He went into that kind of a mode um, and we then walked off and Philip Ruddock was travelling with Tony Abbott at that stage and Philip Ruddock drove me, oh, how are you, you know, chatting away and whatever. And <laughs> poor Tony's like, you know, I, I don't think he meant it to come out that way. I mean, it it was a comment that ghosted me and it ghosted mm. him for all the wrong reasons. I think if a Prime Minister said it now, post Me Too and everything else, I think mm. you would not get elected yeah. now. I think it would be taken really poorly. Um, but... You know, it it was a you know it was a very divisive comment. I mean, it was very hurtful. Members of my family, mm. um, they found it really offensive. Um, you know, and but other f- members of my family thought it was funny. So you w- know, what happens behind the scenes? Um, cameras are gone. Maybe you have some time with them. With one of the media advisors from from the prime minister's office, or the sorry, the opposition leader's office. At, at that time, is there is there you know drama happening behind the scenes, or is it kind of just like we sit back and watch this unfold? Um, I did the smartest thing possible, and I think I can probably attribute this action to none other than the senator for New South Wales, also known as Maurice Payne. Um, I went door knocking, yeah. <laughs> just get her out of the office and get out of the office. Yeah. The last place you want to be is in the campaign office. Mm. You just want to be away from it. There's other people to handle that sort of stuff. Um, I don't know if it was, it may have been the next day um, back at the good old Wednesday markets and I was there with, I think, Mark Tobin, who was a media advisor from Liberal Party headquarters and um, I get this phone call from, so nothing was really actually said to me. Mm. It was just go door knocking. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just get go away door, from it. Just go door knocking. Um and then I was at the Wednesday markets the next day and people are having a laugh about it and, and all the rest of it. And there's, you know, you just keep going. You know, you don't stop. You just keep going. And then I get this phone call from Tony Abbott and he says, oh, um, I'm going to text you a number. I want you to call this number. It's Ray Hadley. I want you to talk to Ray Hadley. And you're going to talk to Ray. And um, just talk about, you know, the Panthers announcement of, you know, $22 million for mm. the Western Sydney Community Centre and, you know, just talk about this and this and, you know, that's all you need to talk about. Just talk about that. And so I ring Tobes. Uh, Tobes is with me and I said, oh, you know, Abbott's just rang this. And he's like, did it go through my name? Nope. <laughs> like, <laughs> you didn't even go through Little Friday headquarters. Yeah. You need to call Ray Hadley right now. So, um, so we go into that um, – uh, is Ross Hutchinson still in that – building yeah he is yeah down yeah. At, the, at the paceway there yep. yeah so yep. we went into that building where ross hutchinson is and yep. out the back where he's got his offices and stuff and we stand in there and ring ray hadley and i have it on speaker and mark tobin's with me and and then hadley asks the question and i said oh i guess it was a you know it was a charming compliment you know T- tony was yeah. trying to be complimentary and so i wasn't really given any sort of direction on what okay. to say and that no, sort of no uh, no dot points on that one no there was no dot points on that one and then a couple of days later um we then you know there's then like the full clean up of it <laughs> and so it's an announcement or may have been about cctv cameras for you know Penrith, high street penrith and queen street st mary's mm. 
and it's at St Mary's train at St Mary's police station and there's me Maurice Abbott um Michael Keenan maybe George Brandis I think maybe George was there um Barry O'Farrell Mike Gallagher who was the New South Wales police minister like just mm-hmm. overkill cast yeah. of thousands yeah. and we're upstairs at St Mary's you know we've we've done the walk through going to do the announcement and um Peter Credlin walks out. Okay, so we're going to walk downstairs because there was like way too many ministers and shadow ministers for everything, you know, and a future prime minister and a serving premier. Okay, I want Fiona, Tony, want, you know, sorry, Tony, Barry, Fiona, and Keenan, and Gallagher, whatever. Yeah. And Maurice says, no, <laughs> you're not going to feed it to the wolves. Like, no, 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 like full press bus. And Maurice and Peter Credlin have a conversation about it and then you did it and so, you know, it stuck and we went downstairs and we're standing there, you know, in front of the front steps of St Mary's um, police station and um, James Masola, who um, is one of the Canberra journos in the press gallery, um, he, you know, you'd had the James Diaz thing where he had fallen over and Masola says to me, oh, Tony Abbott has his five-pillar economy. I would like to know from Fiona Scott, what are the five pillars? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, oh, gosh. And so, like, I had asked Liberal Party head office, I'd want every single dot point, and yep. I had wrote, learned every single policy. Every, so it didn't matter. They could have asked me the nine points of productivity, yep. and I knew what the nine points of productivity. They could have asked me anything. Mm. I would have known it. And... um you know, Abbott then tries to answer the question. And Masola says, I didn't ask you, Mr. Abbott. I asked Fiona Scott. I said, well, you know, the five-pillar economy, well, it's very important for Penrith because, you know, education, well, we have the University of Western Sydney. Agriculture, well, we've got 20% of big production comes from Penrith and, you know, rattled through yeah. and a local example for every single one of them. And then Abbott grabs me in a bear hug and he goes, see, she's not just a pretty face. <laughs> and everyone goes, no, <laughs> I can't believe he did that. But, you know, so it's... Um, yeah, it was fun and games. In the end, you look back on that comment now, did it, did it I guess, haunts maybe not the right word, but did it dog you yeah. a bit um, yeah. as, your, as your career goes on? It dogged me in a few ways. Like, it dogged me that it, I think in a positive and negative way, I think in a positive way, um, the last few years in Parliament, what we've seen is cultural challenges and particularly around the treatment of women within Parliament House. And I think having had that comment made me um, hyper aware of how people could perceive me as a young, single, unmarried woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to not go to the public bar in Canberra and, you know, I'd get into the office at six o'clock in the morning in my active wear and then I would do a seven kilometre run around Lake Burley Griffin and then I would change into my and have a shower at Parliament House and get myself ready for the day. And then at the end of the day, I would leave Parliament House in my active wear, which means you're not going out yeah. to do anything, you know, and you're not participating. So I think it made me hyper vigilant to be super aware of how I could be perceived. Um, and I, I think that was that was probably a positive. Mm. The negative is that. You know, you're just the little blonde sex appeal piece, you know, and you easily dismissed. And, you know, you have to work harder to overcome that. And I think there's a lot of challenges of women trying to 
um, pull themselves up and trying to move into politics and when you're then trying to also you know get over the top of something that can be very profiling of you which was not even my decision I mean I developed a good relationship or friendship with Sarah Hanson Young when I was down in parliament and she's someone I, I still really value today and we had this conversation and to her credit she's like I know two things about you Fiona I know this and I know <laughs> sex appeal and I said to her well I didn't ask for that comment mm. and she just went you're right okay let's be friends <laughs> and, 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 and and I think that's that's the thing that you know it, it was profiling in that way and it did take more to overcome it mm. it also meant that you know people then thought that they could say to me well you only got elected because he said that well if it was such an amazing, you know, political strategy, why has no other political leader ever tried that again? Yeah. Like it's yeah. never been tried again. And so it wasn't some big career strategy. Um, and, and that sort of dismisses the 30,000 houses that were door knocked, the three mm. years of work that went into it. And yeah. the 300 volunteers standing out on polling day handing out brochures. I mean, that's politics is a team sport. You win as a team, you lose as a team. And you know, and if you choose to play as individuals, then you're guaranteed to lose. So, you know, it's it sort of, I think it disses on a lot of people's work and contribution in that space. And I don't believe for a second that Tony Abbott meant to say it. I think it was just a faux pas. We all have them from time to time and it's just brain fart, you know, but it did have ramifications. Now, moving on from that, you win the seat. In yep. 2013, that election night. First of all, do you remember at what point during the night do you say, "This is one of I've, I've got this"? Um, and secondly, is there an actual concession call? Does David Bradbury call you? Uh, yes, and yes. So, so I knew we had one when the first booth came in. Um, my inner geekness is, yep. <laughs> I love demographics, love it, and so. You know, having worked in Penrith for so long, knowing the demographics really well, having worked with Westfield, knowing what mosaic ch- tiling of the demographics and all the rest of it, um, and having researched the booths going back seven or eight elections, um, you know, I can quickly do the numbers in my head and see yes or no where mm. it was going to go. Um, so the first booth coming in, you know, I knew. Um, David Bradbury did call me. And, um, however, he called somebody else's phone um, and he, that, that phone was handed to me and they didn't tell me it was David. Right. And they just handed me a phone. Oh, here, you got to take this call. <laughs> and then David is making a really humble, genuine concession speech. And I didn't even know it was him because nobody <laughs> had told me. And then it was literally as I was walking into the room and so there's cameras everywhere and there's people yelling at me and I couldn't even really hear mm. him. And I, it, I feel bad about it because it was probably yeah. incredibly disrespectful to him. But I didn't know. Like I didn't know it was him. I, you know, and so he's halfway through and, <laughs> you know, and I mean – Politics had been his life dream, so that mm. would have been a terribly hard call for him to make. Mm. And, you know, I probably lacked grace, not necessarily knowing it was him at the time, but he did He did do that. Now, what's it like then, like, I guess in sporting terms, you know, you spend the whole year trying to get to the grand final, but then you're actually there and you've, you've got to win it. So you, you, you go through essentially a three-year <laughs> campaign to, uh, to win the seat. You're there then. So mm. what's the transition like to... 
life as the um, the Lindsay MP and yeah, adjusting to life in Canberra. Well, I'm going to carry your sporting terminology on from when the Panthers won the 1991 Grand Final <laughs> and three quarters of our team then had to go and join the Kangaroo Tour. Oh, yes, so it yeah. just kept going, you yeah. know, and then they were on the Kangaroo Tour and then they were back in pre-season for the 92 season. So, mm. you know, it was a similar thing. So you get elected, then you've got to staff your office. Um, you've got to get all that up and ha- happening as quickly as possible because, you know, the community have immigration issues. They have... Um, child support issues, they have disability issues, they've got issues with Centrelink or, or whatever the other federal mm. agencies are and you know, those things are you know, I literally need a house tomorrow, I can't get through Centrelink oh, sorry, you don't yeah. care that you just got elected you know, the office is, of I need you today, you know, so you know, that's the nature of the job, so you've just got to you know, mm. you've just got to be able to act straight away um, I was really grateful that I pretty much walked straight in with a full complement of staff, yep. um, which I had sort of collected and curated um, before then that um, I walked in with, you know, have full, four full-time staff at the time. When I walked in with the keys to the office, two of my staff walked in with me that day mm-hmm. and literally took the computers over from parliamentary services my office manager came in that afternoon. Um, I think the that was a Thursday. He started on the Monday. So, you know, uh, and my media advisor um, dropped in on the Friday and she started a week later. So within eight days, I had all my staffing yeah. roles placed, um, which was amazing. Um, I was then put up to do my maiden speech and that was to be the first day of sitting so it was the first day of parliament is all the ceremonial opening of parliament and then my maiden speech was to be the second day i got given like four or five days notice for that which is a really significant speech about Mm. your life and your family and what you stand for and all the rest of it um i had written quite a lot of it in advance but you know when you're finally under the heat of that with only four days notice it wasn't enough time to sort of really get my family down to Canberra Um, half my family couldn't make it Um, so we just had to rush that through um, which just meant it just kept going Mm. and it was just a a, you know it it just went really fast and I sort of got to Christmas and I you know I just couldn't slow down because it was just too much one after another so on Christmas Eve I booked myself a flight to um, Nepal and on Boxing Day, I flew out to trek to base camp of Everest. Wow! <laughs> but that was that was literally to try and yep. find equilibrium again, clear the decks, focus my brain, mm. and start you know twenty fourteen on on a you know on an even keel and sort of blow away everything that happened in twenty thirteen. Because the, the reality is. You know, n- none of us, but certainly the the general public in general, we just never quite understand what it's like. It's not, it isn't a nine to five job at all. We we know that. Um, it's also not just the time that you're spending there in um, in Parliament House. Every in in terms of the local area, everyone wants you to cut their ribbon. Everyone wants you to to attend their function and eat um, their cake. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, yep, that's right. Function food becomes your um, yeah. your your day to day you know um, diet and and whatnot. So it's it's a pretty challenging role to you know for, to be in the headspace um, every single day as well, particularly as a first termer as well. Yeah, it, it is a it is a difficult role, and I think 
the first thing is I think you have to love the area. You have to love the community and you have to want to fight for it. You have to believe in it. And I think if mm. you don't believe in it, you can't do that job. Um, the other thing I tried to do as well is to never lose – and I learned this in marketing, you know. Um, when I was at Westfield, the first thing you do is in the morning – we'd cut a lap of the shopping centre, look at look yep, at the centre, okay. see where everything is and, you know, half pretend to shop the centre. You know, if you're going to understand why sales are the way they are, you need to know what's in the shop windows. You yep. need to know is that fashion on trend or not. You've, you've got to see it. And, you know, they teach you that in marketing that you should always walk, ne- never come in the back door of, of a business you work in, walk in the front door mm. and try and take fresh eyes at your business every single day. You know, don't just sneak in the back and go to your desk. You know, just walk through the front yep. And, you know, you might see the cobwebs that are there, you know, try not to be shop blind. So every morning in Parliament, I would do that seven kilometre lap around Lake Billy Griffin and I'd always come back up the main courtyard of Parliament and I'd look at the flag and I'd look at the building and never lose the awe and respect and what it means to actually then take my community with me to Canberra Mm. and never lose the awe of it which you see people do lose the awe of it out there they're like oh whatever you know and I don't think you should I think that's when I think parliamentarians lose their way and their moral compass is because I think they've they've lost what it means to you know represent your community to to be there to be that voice and that it that it is an incredible honor it is an incredible privilege and for me that moment was something I did every morning, Mm. doing that lap, going back up that courtyard, even when it was raining, going through the public entrance, seeing people come through and, you know, that that is the centering piece so that you you stay focused and on task. Now things are humming along pretty well in Lindsay, but uh, the national situation is is not so well in in, in terms of late 2015 um, when, when the decision is made by by the party that the Tony Abbott won't take it to the the 2016 election. Can you take us through that? Um, must have been an extremely difficult decision for you to make too, uh, given that you know you're on Tony Abbott's um, ticket, I guess, in terms of getting uh, into Parliament, and and he was out here so often, and you'd been so intrinsically linked with him, I guess, um, yeah. to be elected. Tell us um, what unfolds in the lead up and, and on the day. Yeah, look, I. <sighs> The actual day itself, like in the lead up to it, um, Tony Abbott's leadership became terminal when he brought the National Party into the Liberal Party in the party room to discuss the same-sex marriage debate Mm -hmm. and didn't hold that vote or that conversation in a way in line with any form of sort of um, convention of the Liberal Party. That just wasn't there. and then from there on in, the mutterings were everywhere that his leadership was terminal. Um, when it was Tony Abbott against the empty chair, a lot of what people don't remember is that the two gentlemen that signed that um, that process, who you know moved it and seconded it, were both conservatives, you know, hardcore conservatives from the Western Australian division. And um, you know, so Tony Abbott was moved on by his own mm. side. Um, secondly, I, I wasn't factionally aligned to Tony Abbott. I've always been a moderate. So yeah. um, I've always been in the libertarian side of the party, so the smaller liberal, um, which is more the economic side of the party, and that's sort of where I, I sit. 
um, whenever I heard mutterings, I walked away and I walked away for a few reasons. Firstly, that experience of standing next to David Bradbury watching it happen to, happen to David. Mm. And, you know, I'm like, oh, my God, here we go. Shit. <laughs> um, so that was sort of where I was at and I just stayed away from it. So I didn't attend any of those meetings. So whenever you read anything in any book, you'll never see my name that yep. I was at the Peter Hendy house mm. or I was here. I, I didn't go to any of that stuff. I was asked about it once. And I said, look, I can see that, you know, seats like Higgins and some of the eastern suburbs, which the Liberal Party lost uh, in this, in the 2022 election, um, that those seats were under pressure. But I didn't feel that I was under pressure here in Penrith with Tony Abbott and it wasn't a problem for me. Yeah. Um, and that was the only sort of feedback that I provided. When the day it actually happened, because I had so removed myself from any part of the conversation, I was literally blindsided mm. um, because I, if it was going to happen, at least I didn't want to be involved. I just, I couldn't be involved and I couldn't lie to the public that I was involved. I just stayed away from it. Um, and that was conscious doing. And even with my office, my staff, we battened down the hatches and we didn't go to lunch with people. We had lunch in our office and we just stayed away from that happening, you know, we couldn't change it, but it was going on. So when it actually happened, I had the people from the local land care group from Penrith here, um, they were in my office and there was, you know, a dozen of them and we had all the maps of the Nepean River talking about Warragamba Dam (laughs) and um, all the sort of flood mitigation issues and, you know, blue-green algae and the black willow and everything going up the Nepean River and what we needed to do for the preservation of the river. Mm. And so we're in my office with like these huge maps of the Nepean River, like literally going through this with the local land care group. And I get this call from Peter Hendy and it comes through to one of my staff. And Fiona, you know, Peter Hendy's on the phone. It's like, I'm busy. I'm sorry. I don't, mm. don't have time. No, no. And they, you know, you've got to pick up the phone. I was yeah. like, okay, fine. Okay. What is it? Um, Malcolm Turnbull has resigned the ministry and he is literally, as we speak, on his way out to the courtyard to formally challenge Tony Abbott for the leadership. Mm. You need to turn your TV on. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I walk back into my office. I turn on the TV with maps in the Nepean River everywhere and the local land care groups. And we're all <laughs> watching the events transpire. And, yeah. and that was literally how it happened. And... Um, you know, (laughs) we finished the meeting and and they all sort of said, you know, (laughs) if there was any place to be, to be in Canberra with our local MP and then watching that all happen and all, you know, happen in front of us. And is there calls in the next few hours from both camps? No. Um, Not at all? No. Does that suggest they, they think that they knew where you stood? Um... I don't know. I, I don't think so. I mean, I think the Abbott camp would have always thought I was a moderate mm. um, because even in the party room, I sat with the moderates. I was always with the moderates and so they would have assumed I was just a moderate. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. I I didn't – I hadn't made myself readily available one side of the other. I didn't take phone calls. I, I, I mean, I had um, – yeah, I, I, I didn't take – those sorts of phone calls, I just, I had avoided it. 
you know, people could make any analogy they liked, but I had kept quiet. The The only calls that I then made was when the Landcare Group left, I, um, I had a phone call with all of my staff and we actually debated it out because I hadn't made my mind up what we were going to do. Yep. I didn't know. Um, because, I mean, I knew it was going on, but I just had avoided it because I just didn't want it to be the truth. Like, I just mm. felt so deeply ashamed because we said we would be different and here yeah. we were doing the same bloody thing. And I was so disappointed. So I rang my staff and we just, we talked it all out. What do we do? Which way do I go? And what is the pros and cons and whatever? And so we had a long conversation about it. And then I had a call with my family and, you know, synced them all up through my phone and had the same phone call. And both groups of people had the same consensus. Um, and that's the way I voted. And I voted in line with my family values and with what my family said was the right thing to do. Um, my brother, Glenn, in particular, you know, had a very strong view as to what he thought the best thing for the country was. And we discussed all of that at length. And when the time came to go down to the party room, I um, there's sort of a opposite the entry to the party room Parliament House, there's a, a stairwell, you know, like you'd see like a fire escape kind mm -hmm. of stairwell. And I walked from my office down that stairwell to avoid all the cameras because I was so ashamed that we were doing this. And then we sat down and I'm sitting there, you know, I, I was sitting between... Um, Maurice Payne and Paul Fletcher and you know you're just looking at two men you know two two guys who their whole life you know this is mm. their dream and for one of them this was the end of the road you know and that's I respected both of them you know yeah. it just it was one of the most awful things I've ever had to do and it was just excuse language it was just shit mm. let's fast forward a little yay 2016 maybe not maybe not <laughs> oh, so no, maybe hey. not so yay Yay is yay. I'm interested in 2016 because I think that there was an expectation that you were going to win the seat. You mentioned earlier that, you know, often, you know, Lindsay would be a two-term or and has been traditionally, obviously held by Labor for a long time and then yeah. by Jackie Kelly for a long time and, and David Bradbury for a couple of terms. Um, life's different for you heading into 2016 as well. You're married by, by this time, so it's a, it's, a, it's a different kind of feel, I imagine, but... Where were you feeling? Like, when did you first feel I'm in trouble here? Because, you know, I often, there's often, you know, polls done and mm. um, internal polling and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but generally, there didn't seem to be a, a feeling that you were going to lose the seat. But internally, where was it at? Well, for starters, the biggest issue I had is that there was a benchmark poll done that was hugely inaccurate mm -hmm. and really wrong. Um, probably can say it nowadays. It had me with a primary of 54 and a 2PP of 60, which okay. meant that I would win the seat on primaries. Mm. Um, and these things weren't corrected. I, um, When this was presented to me, I, I went straight up and I said, this isn't right. This can't be right. For instance, I mean, it's probably getting way too technical, but um, an SA1 is like a postal area you know, might be a couple of hundred houses in it. Yeah. Um, the SA1 of Jordan Springs had a couple of thousand houses in it. 
But under what the SA1 was, it was only one mm. SA1, where really it should be like five or six or seven of them, right? And so with all the growth around Penrith, I didn't believe the mapping mapped right, therefore the demographic sampling was wrong. And so I didn't believe the primary, I didn't believe that and asked for it to be checked. No, 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 this is right, blah, 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 blah. So I didn't think that was where it was at. I thought it was a lot tougher than that. Um, that meant that I had a lot of funding decisions and mm. um, campaign decisions from Liberal Party headquarters were changed because I had a 2PP of 60. Yeah. I had somebody when I said, look, I'm getting smashed. And they said, Fiona, you need to calm down. You need to calm down. You need to be relaxed. You need to calm down. Mm. Um, you need to get used to the fact that um, you're now a safe seat. But then again, you girls get more emotional about these things. And... <laughs> Yeah. So, so wow. that was some of that. Th they were some of the challenges. Mm. And when um, I had other bits of polling told to me from really reputable sources mm. that I was very well aware of what Labor were going to do exactly and how their campaign was going and what it was going to happen, um, because there were stakeholders that thought it was important for Lindsay to stay blue whilst the rest of w Western Sydney was red. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of support that I was given from far and wide. Um, so I would feed that information back in and, no, no, that's not true. You, know, you remember the benchmark? I'm like, the benchmark is wrong. I'm telling you mm. it's wrong. And they wouldn't believe me. Um, then um, it's it sort of um, the first day of the campaign and they're trying to stitch me up with the ABC and... You know, when, I guess for me, the really crucial moment was when um, Bill Shorten announced that he was going to launch the Liberal camp, the Labor campaign at the Jones Sutherland mm -hmm. and then on the Monday night was going to do Four Corners also from the Jones Sutherland. Yeah. I rang, that was actually where that comment, you know, you need to get you relaxed, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and then I said, Labor wouldn't launch here in Penrith if they didn't think Lindsay was up for grabs. Mm. No, no, no. That's just because the Riverside Theatre is not available and there's no other theatres in Western Sydney <laughs> that they can go to. I'm like, that's the biggest load of crap. So um, I knew we were in trouble then. Like, yeah. I knew that was the case. And um, That's interesting because I think there's a perception that it was a, a big surprise to... Um or to you and others on the night, but you knew from pretty early on that, that there was I, a fight I, on. I knew from early on, and like in 2013, I knew with the first booth. Yeah. So okay. the first booth that came in was Stewart Street, which is um, just off Bolgo yep. Road. Which, yeah. Um, Jamison yeah. Town there. Jamison Town. It's a really small booth, only a couple of hundred votes, but it's um, demographically neutral, you know, like it's not really left mm. or right wing it's it's a fairly neutralish sort of booth and i just when that first one came in i you know i said we've lost and stuart was in the telly room, no 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 it's fine it's fine you're fine i'm like no it's lost and i just i was categorical that i knew i kind of i knew when i got in the car that morning like mm. i just knew but we fought as hard as we could and we did what we could at the time and um you know and yeah it took two weeks to, to work out the result and all the rest of it but in my heart i knew then and um just to that point chaos on the night though uh in terms of uh, emma Hussa claiming victory 
apparently after being told not to yeah. <laughs> by by Labor, but um, but yeah, so clearly there was no concession from you on on the night either, um, as there shouldn't have been. It was still a, a close a close battle on the evening, even though. It was it was indicating that it would go that way. Yeah, and as I said, I, I knew with Stuart. I knew it was Stuart mm. Street. At the moment Stuart Street came in, I knew with that one booth. And like, I can't remember the numbers, but like it's three hundred votes or something. Yeah. Nothing. Like when you're talking, you know, one hundred and ten thousand voters in electorate, three hundred votes is nothing. But Stuart Street's not, you know, Castle Ray that tends to vote Liberal. It's not St Mary's that tends to vote Labor. Mm. It's neither. And so, and it's only 300 votes, but for me, it was enough to sit there and go, mm, I can't beat that swing. Yeah. I'm interested in what happens next from a, from a personal point, because I think politicians can be very easily dehumanised by both the media and, and the public. There is a, you know, almost a feeling like they're robots out there and, you know, um, you, you know, you win, you lose, see you later, whatever. But from, from your personal point of view, how did you take that loss? Badly. (laughs) (laughs) Really badly. Look, 2016 was a really difficult year. Like, 2016 is probably one of the most difficult years of my life, and I don't think I can Mm. express that enough. Um, My sister-in-law died of ovarian cancer on the 22nd of January. Got married on the 23rd. Um, Hayley was only 36. Um, My father-in-law went to get up went to get his part of the ashes a couple of weeks later. He had a giant heart attack, pitched himself into the hospital at Singleton. Uh, sorry, at um, Tamworth. Mm. I don't know why I said Singleton. Um, the day he was released from hospital, my mother-in-law was diagnosed with bowel cancer and by the 31st of March she had died. Um, in that period of time, my husband was chief of staff to a national security agencies within the Australian Parliament and... You know, we made the decision that he needed to leave that employment so he could spend what time was left with his mother mm-hmm. um, because, you know, literally cancer diagnosis and she died a couple of weeks yeah. later is pretty brutal. Absolutely. Um, so there was a lot going on in all of that. Um, and, you know, to be newly married and, I mean, we had to fit our honeymoon between, you know, the wedding and his sister's yeah. funeral, you know, and our honeymoon discussing matters of his sister's funeral at our mm. honeymoon. So mm. that was kind of, um, that was 2016. And so when we then lost in on the 2nd of July, it just, it was a multitude of things that just smacked us out really, dif- which was really difficult. And um, where do you go to from here? What do you do now? Like, mm. you know, and... Being I'd worked so hard and I'd missed, you know, I'd said to my grandmother when I got elected, if I get elected, can I borrow, this is my mum's mum, can I borrow my grandfather's war medals? And she just lives at Lake Macquarie and she said, oh, just come up come up to Lake Macquarie, take me out for lunch and, you know, I won't just loan you the miniatures, you can borrow his real ones. Yeah. I never found a day from when I got pre-selected in 2012 to when I lost my seat, that I could actually go and see my grandmother for a Mm. day. Like Mm. I missed every family event of all sorts of things. And, you know, I used to have this thing that I'd make, you know, cakes for my nieces for their birthdays. Well, that stopped when I got elected because I didn't have time. Mm. And, you know, so to reconnect and re-pick up your life and all of those sorts of things is also a difficult challenge. And so we did you know, you, you just have to work those things out and then work out where you fit in the world. Um, one of the things we then did was we um, 
obviously being newly married, we, we did want to start a family. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, sort of got as much of that out of our system, tried to work out employment and we did that and yeah. rebuilt. Um, you know, one of the biggest um, factors in rebuilding is Paul Murray. I just will never, ever be able to thank that man enough. Yeah. He's just such a wonderful, wonderful human. And um, so... We, st- we rebuilt, rebuilt our income, rebuilt our careers and things. And um, we went through IVF, four rounds of IVF, 16 medical procedures in 14 months, snapped my knee in half in the middle of it, riding stupid horses. <laughs> um, you know, and then the sex appeal thing comes back up because, you know, <laughs> you're doing IVF and you, mm. you're injecting yourself with high levels of estrogen and or progesterone or whatever. And so you put on a huge amount of weight, you know, it's, just what it is when you inject yourself with hormones and you know people look at look how fat you are you fat ugly trog you know you know uh, know, tony abbott was right wrong when he said you had sex appeal (laughs) you know and you'd have women send stuff to you to say you know oh you know you lay off the pork pies lay off the big Mm. macs Mm. it's like yeah no i'm not eating big macs it's called ivf so have fun thank you thank you for your consideration so it kind of you still have all of this negative stuff being thrown at you. Yeah, it still it still follows you. It around. follows you around. So 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 the next couple of years were really difficult. Mm. You know they were difficult. You know to try and you know rebuild with you know my husband's family with having lost both his mum and his sister and you know rebuild financially um, after leaving Parliament we had substantial debt um, paying all that down and then you know trying to start a family mm. going through IVF you know, and, and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, I guess if I went to ground, I mean, yes, I did Sky and, uh, you know, various other media sources, but mm. I just tried to get on with life. Uh, after those difficult couple of years, is there a, is there a moment, is there a, a point where you, you do feel like it's in the past, um, the political life, or, or, or do you still sit there on budget night with the popcorn and the... Uh and want to return one day? Well, I don't necessarily sit in the in with the popcorn because um, the last few budgets I've been in Parliament <laughs> House. Um, no, look, I I love I, I love this country and and I love politics and um, and I love the opportunity of it, you know, into the future. I mean, if the stars align to go back into Parliament, I would be interested. Um, it has to be the right opportunity and and the right place um you know i think melissa mcintosh is doing a great job here i'm not Mm. in any way (laughs) looking to to topple her at all but um you know whether that's what i do at the moment in in a supporting capacity whether it's in a in a different role whether it's from the media um you know i i think it's one of the i think it's an important contribution that you can make to the country and do you think as far as what you want to do in the future is concerned do you if it's not in politics do you feel I guess that it defines you. Does it define you? Do you still, you know, when you see people now, you're the former member for Lindsay, that's, you know, is it hard to recapture what you had before that, I guess? Um, I think so, but uh, I think the hard thing is if I went back to corporate marketing now, I mean, you've got to think, um, you know, I, I haven't done corporate marketing, so to speak, since, you know, what, 2010. Mm. You know, in the last 12 years, I mean, um, Facebook only really became massive, what, 2007, 2008. So 
you know, 2010, it was, yeah, you know, you'd put sort of text posts on, but now you've got TikTok and yeah. all this other stuff, you know, in a post-COVID environment where people work from home and it's, you know, the way these online tools work and, you know, the mechanisms. I mean, you would think from the paper itself, you know, back yeah. in 2010 when yeah, you yeah. had the paper with high wide and, you know, all of yeah. these other different mechanics, I mean, as to what the paper is now or any of these things. So, you know, I, I think in a career specific, particularly as dynamic as something like marketing that does change so much of those period of times, I think it'd be very difficult to pick up exactly mm. a marketing career. Um, I do enjoy the battle of ideas and the contest of ideas. I mean, for instance, having gone through IVF, I think there's huge areas of the public debate that I want to see changed. Yep. For instance, I think things like that should be paid for by Medicare. Mm. I believe that... You know, we need to explain to young women about the truth of their biology that, mm. you know, when you are most fertile, when, when things actually work, I think there's a lot of conversation at the moment around, you know, gender and um, sex and, you know, what it means to be a man or a woman or, you know, any of, you know, how people identify. I think they're important conversations, but so is the actual biology. I mm. mean, after four rounds of IVF, I know pretty well that there's no way I can get my husband pregnant. Yeah. I don't have the right biology yeah. for that. But then I also know that having started the process, you know, having gone through my career and everything, I we started at probably a, a more challenging age, you know. So I think there's a lot that, you know, we need to have these conversations mm. about. And when you look at Roe versus Way that came up in the United States and how, you know, the abortion laws went there, I mean, there's a lot for women to contribute to political life, but also the narrative of what that means. And I was having a conversation with somebody today and we were talking about this exact point and his comment was, you know, like if you were, um, you know, if if you had a child at 24, you know, you'd be an outcast because, you know, nobody has children at yeah. 24. And I thought, hey, yeah. hey, hang on a minute. You live in the eastern suburbs. Yeah, it's yeah. completely in the reverse yeah. at Penrith. Like if I had a child now, I'd be like the same age as grandmothers. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to have these conversations and narratives and I think that's still a really important thing and I find that to be um, to be important and I think – when, it look, when you look at a place like Western Sydney that's growing and it's so dynamic and you've got so many different cultures coming in here, I, you know, the ability to advocate for that area but then also have those conversations that are not just, you know, um, not, just, not just railroaded by the eastern suburbs. I mean, I guess I got the bug again about politics. Um you know, I'm, I'm going to blame Kylie Tink yeah. for this, the new member for North Sydney, when I actually got me so angry. I was listening to her debate on Sky and she started talking about congestion taxes. Mm. And I got so mad about it. I mean, who does she think runs the hospitals in North Sydney? Do, yeah. Where's the nurses come from? Where do the teachers come from? Where's mm. the hospitality staff? Where's the cleaning staff? Where is a whole range of other white and blue-collar workers and tradies that work in North Sydney. What, she wants to charge taxes to everybody living in Western Sydney to yeah. come and actually run her area? Or she just wants to put congestion taxes on it so none of us can go work in the city and, you know, you know, ring-fence the city? And it's things like that where you sit there and go, yeah, I, I want to change that. And, you know, I think that, you know, it does, you know, whether that is in as a representative or through the ability of, 
driving conversation, driving narrative, working through the media, you know, mm. working through other forms, you know, like as in op-eds and podcasts and other things. Yeah. I think there's a really important role for Western Sydney right now to really step up and say, look, we believe in climate change. We understand that we've had 50 degree days. We've seen our river yeah. flood. We've, yeah. we've, we've had all of this stuff. We get it. We're not, we're not, we understand, but we need to have solutions that are equitable for all of our country. Mm. And we need to have that type of a voice that we're part of that narrative as well. And, um, I don't know, that still gets me hot under the collar that I just want to see that equity across our whole region. I think you can tell that you're, you're still pretty enthusiastic about um, advocating for change, advocating for, for, I guess, a better future for everyone as well. And it's interesting, those things, like you mentioned about IVF, and, and we don't talk about those things enough and the conversations aren't had enough, even from a societal viewpoint of, you know, um, I became a dad 18 months ago. Yeah, so at, congratulations. At, at, at say, but later though, say, so I was 30, 37, 38 at the time. The 10 years before that, the constant, are you having kids soon? Are you having kids today? And nobody knows what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, no. And in the backgrounds of people and the amount of people that do have trouble in, in that regard. So we, we clearly need to have more conversation about it because it's not a societal norm. The societal norm is to ask you those questions. Yeah, it is. And, and I think it is a matter of, Having those communications, I mean, I remember sitting in the IVF clinic and, you know, you have blood tests and they're six o'clock in the morning and everyone's sort of like hiding under their mm. newspaper because oh, nobody's going to see me in here because I'm so shameful. You know, I, I think we need to have those conversations. We need to be honest about it. And it's not shameful. And, you know, it's, you know, th- there's there's a lot of conversations that also flow from that about, you know, sperm donation egg donation and all the other different procedures and how those things are legislated and you know what options i mean if if housing prices and cost of living is where it is and they just keep growing in capital cities like sydney and even out out here in penrith then it forces people to have children later but our fertility Mm. is particularly for women is at the highest in your early 20s but how can you afford a house and everything else and have children at that stage so you end up in your 30s and before you know it, you're then sitting in an IVF clinic. So I think if there was an ability for, you know, eggs to be frozen earlier for Mm. women to have more choices, um, you know, and and that then feeds into ranges of childcare and various other things. Um, But these are the whole of society conversations we need to have, um, you know, men and women and you know, and, and it's it's more than just talking about, you know, gender as to how you identify. And I think, I, I don't think those conversations actually are mutually exclusive. I think they need to happen all together. Mm. I, I don't think you can just talk about how you identify without talking about what your biology is and what your biology means because, you know, how some of that conversation um, extrapolates will maybe affect how some of you know, those processes within your own body work and choices you might choose to make 10 years later, 15 years later. And, you know, I just hope, you know, young people have all of those, all of that knowledge that they're, you know, when they're making some of these choices, that they have all the knowledge and all the choices in front of them that they, you know, those opportunities are all there for them. What is pretty clear is that uh, there is still much to come from <laughs> Fiona maybe Scott. Not. Um, the, the last question, the question we always ask, even though there is much more to come, how would Fiona Scott like to be remembered? Um, somebody who cares and a nice person. You know, I think, um, you know, somebody who 
try to make other people's lives better. Indeed. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Great chat. Thank you. And I hope you enjoyed our chat. On the Record is produced by The Western Weekender. To hear future episodes or past episodes, search Western Weekender wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure you hit subscribe. Check out westernweekender.com.au and we will see you next time.